Welcome back to the Therapy for Real Life podcast. This is not therapy, this is real life. I'm your host, Anna Lindbergh-Seeder, and as listeners to the show know, Therapy for Real Life podcast aims to translate burnout prevention and therapy concepts into everyday self-care skills. Today, I'm excited to share with you a recent interview with Anne Helen Peterson about her book, Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation, in which she shares some hard truths about the culture of burnout and the systems that produce it that millennials are facing today. I hope that if you are experiencing burnout or feel overwhelmed by the topics that you're about to hear and discuss, I hope you listen all the way through to the end of the episode because Anne shares some really wise words about her personal learnings about burnout prevention, even while sharing a really healthy critique of the self-care industrial complex that you'll hear her talk more about. Thank you as always for listening to the show. You're welcome to share feedback by rating and review the episode wherever podcasts are found and sharing with friends and family to make self-care and burnout prevention part of your community and culture. Thank you. Enjoy the show. And Helen Peterson, welcome to the Therapy for Real Life podcast. It's great to have you here. I'm so happy to be here. I can't wait to hear uh, more about your thoughts about the book, and I really enjoyed reading it, but I'm hoping that we could start by defining our terms. Mm -hmm. Do you mind defining for our listeners, what is your definition of burnout? So my definition is is a pretty expansive one, and I, I really think of it as more of like a feeling, right? Instead of like a clinical diagnosis. I know that sometimes clinical diagnosis can be based on feelings, but uh, I think of it as like you hit the wall and instead of falling down exhausted or like stopping work or making a change in your life, you scale the wall and then you keep going, right? Mm -hmm. And in those terms or in that scenario, burnout becomes just the backdrop of your entire life, right? It's like the air that you breathe. It's your new normal. And it's a a feeling of exhaustion mixed with, I think, flatness, right? Like there aren't, um, there aren't the feelings of catharsis and accomplishment that usually accompany um, achievement in some way, you know, like your to-do list, whether it's to do with being on vacation or doing tasks that are more onerous, like it all just feels the same. It just feels like one long, never ending to-do list. So that's, that's pretty descriptive, but that's how I think about it. <laughs> so I appreciate your definition of burnout and that matches the literature because we don't currently have a clinical definition of burnout. Uh, the closest we have comes from the World Health Organization and they describe it more as a process. Um, that can come with a a feeling of mental distance, uh, fatigue, low energy, and a feeling of pessimism or cynicism about the work that you're doing is included in that definition. And the World Health Organization takes care to say that that definition should be limited 
to the occupational realm. And I'm wondering if you agree, do you think that burnout is a work work problem or are you finding burnout in other areas of life? <laughs> so I think the interesting thing about that diagnosis and the fact that it comes from the World Health Organization is it really assumes a, a delineation between your work life and the rest of your life. And I think that in America and in other fiercely capitalist company countries, that that delineation has really fallen apart. So like I, I like most millennials I know um, who are working in the creative field, there is no separation between myself and my job, like I am my job. And that is a statement that is is hard to say, but also true to say. And I think it's true, you know, for people who aren't necessarily what we think of as creatives, but who are, uh, healthcare professionals, um, people who work in teaching and education, like there is just so much slippage between the self and the job. And that's just not even in terms of like, oh, it's my vocation, it's my passion, I'm following it, but just how much work has infiltrated all of these other corners of our lives. So that's part of it. But then I also think that a lot of the things that exacerbate burnout have very little to do with the workplace per se. Like obviously the work conditions have are a key component of it. But a lot of it for me has to do with feelings of general instability, of precarity. And that has a lot to do with economic factors, with the lack of social safety nets. And then just like the compunction to perform a lot of things um, on social media that it just exacerbates everything. So what I'm hearing you say is there's, whether the World Health Organization recognizes it or not, big part of burnout is not feeling a separation from your work. And I think yeah. I'm hearing you describe a sense of over-identifying with the work that you do. We used to see it more typically in vocational careers like nursing or social work. You're saying people are called to that, that profession, mm -hmm. feeling like inspired, but we're seeing more of a, a generalized um, epidemic of people not being able to separate from their work. Yeah, for sure. And I think the pandemic has, has made that even more vivid, right? Because people's work has, in many cases, has like actually spread all over their home. <laughs> so yeah. there is, there's very little space um, demarcation between work time and, and non-work time. Okay. Well, maybe we can come back to that in a minute of how we got to where we are, but let's, let's um, finish defining our terms a little bit more, if you don't mind. So who is a millennial? And how come I've never met one? Everyone I've met <laughs> that I think is in that demo who might be a millennial goes on to say, well, I'm not your typical millennial. <laughs> um, and then they go on to describe something very human, right? Like, because I don't answer my text messages in two seconds, or um, I like being IRL. Uh, yeah. so, so who is the millennial and why am I having trouble meeting anyone who wants to admit that they are one? <laughs> um, millennials are technically, you know, the the definition according to Pew or to various other uh, organizations is somewhere between born in 1980 and 1981 through 1995 to 1996. Uh, but like, I think someone who is born in 1997 or 1979 can obviously feel many things that are related to millennialness. Like the generational concept is just a loose grouping for us to talk about um, a broad, a broad experience that has some commonalities. And I think that 
you know, part of the reason people are often reticent to be identified as millennials is because millennials were uh, lampooned and ridiculed and criticized so extensively, especially over the course of the 2000s and 2010s, as millennials were entering the workplace, you know, there's this caricature of the millennial as entitled and lazy and, uh, you know, self-indulgent, all sorts of things. And I, not only do I think that that <laughs> designation is, is totally wrong, but it also led for a lot of disidentification with those characteristics. Like most millennials I knew had, you know, don't know what laziness is. And so of course you're like, well, I'm not that kind of millennial because I'm not essentially a boomers or the media's understanding of what a millennial is. And so I do think that we're, we are at this point of pushback where not only are millennials, you know, parents and, and almost nearing their forties, you know, I'm 39, I'm an elder millennial. So we're about to enter into a very different part of our lives, but there's just been people realizing, oh yeah, like millennials do work really hard. Like this conception was always wrong. And it was always, I think other generations mapping their understanding of what maybe hard work look like or framing uh, when, when millennials ask for better working conditions or fair compensation or, or a promotion, like framing that as an entitlement instead of just advocating for good treatment. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. So walk me through it. Why are millennials the burnout generation? You could have picked any generation to focus on. Is it because you're of the millennial generation that you know something about this <laughs> yeah. personally? Or, you know, what is the research telling you about why millennials are the burnout generation? You know, I, I happened on this idea really through my own personal experience of, of arriving at burnout or arriving at the realization of my own burnout, because I had been burnt out for a very long time. Um, but resisting that understanding of it, because I thought that burnout really was this experience of like, something that only happened to like, uh, foreign correspondents in like, mm -hmm. working in war or to doctors or to people who like actually hit points of, of physical, sheer physical exhaustion. And mine was this like more dull backdrop to my life. But as I was trying to investigate what was, what was, <laughs> what was ailing me, which was this like the flatness of the to-do list, my inability to, to get simple errands completed, all routes pointed to, to burnout. And that led me to kind of think about what my burnout looked like and what fed into it investigate my own history and my own attitudes towards work. And that the result of that was the, the personal essay that I, that I wrote for Buzzfeed and that went viral. And what I've done with the book is, is had a chance to really expand it far beyond myself and some of the extrapolations that I made about myself and my generation to think about, you know, the history of child rearing that got us to this place, the economic history that got us here, all sorts of different factors that contributed to uh, this point of generational burnout. So our first understanding, kind of a millennial burnout, you're saying started as a little bit of a blame the victim approach. We mm -hmm. saw millennial, you know, there are these cartoonish stereotypes of millennials being really lazy and getting all the participation awards and asking for a raise 
um, every six months, but they're really butting up against these rock and hard places, uh, choices that their parents didn't necessarily have. What has changed uh, to make to make it feel more like a setup for burnout for the millennial generation? I think we've just gotten old enough. You know, the people used to call it a, a midlife crisis, like when, you know, the mm. traditional, <laughs> the mm. like stereotype of someone who would, like the dad who would buy a Corvette at age 40 and, and was trying to recover some sort of lost youth. But I think our particular midlife crisis is, is grappling with like, okay, so we've gotten to this point, we've worked for all these things, we've tried to achieve these milestones. We're at the age when our parents achieve these milestones. They're not there or they're hard, really, really hard, or they feel like they're never going to come. Like I'm never going to be able to buy a home. I'm never going to pay my student off my student loan debt. I'm never going to be able to be in a financially secure place to have children. And looking also at our relationship to work like okay so i've been in the workplace long enough now i i know what my relationship to work is is this is this what it's all for mm -hmm. um and especially i think right now during the pandemic there has been some space for contemplation like if this is all my life is is just this job right if this is the only place in my life that like i have um dedicated my time my energy my my passion, my, my whole of myself, like what else is left? Like, do I have a personality? Do I have taste? Do I have mm. things that matter to me? Am I part of a community in any meaningful sense? Um, so I think that that's to some extent the, the existential crisis that people are arriving at. So sometimes when we look at terminology, um, it can be helpful in a way because it can wake people up to what we're talking about, kind of like a, a rose by any other name is still a rose. And when you describe burnout of previous generations, maybe we used to call it a midlife crisis, kind of in the way that I think about how we didn't, we didn't always have a word for PTSD. We used to call mm -hmm. it shell shock back right. in the day. Right. Um, but now we do. And even that diagnosis has evolved because when I started my career in nonprofits 20 years ago, we didn't, you didn't qualify for a diagnosis of PTSD from observing horrible traumatic stories all day long. You, you weren't included in that definition, right. but now we've expanded it. Would it be fair to say that what you're describing in in burnout perhaps had a different name across different generations, but um, there's there's a really good argument for saying that millennials just have more of it. Yeah, I think, um, you know, like my grandparents' generation, the greatest generation, like my grandmother and her sisters lived through great deprivation in rural Minnesota through the 1930s and lost their mother, you know, basically had to make ends meet with very little and then had to uh, watch as like, you know, close family members and, and friends went off to war. But then they also like, at the end of that, there was a little bit of relief, right? Like they had, like, there was the, mm. the relative stability of the post-war period um, and were able to enter the middle class. And like their, my grandparents' son, my, my father, was able to go to college like there there was 
there was a catharsis for lack of a better word but at the same time the what they went through the the precarity that they endured for those formative years of their lives like that was with them for the rest of their lives you know i used to always be like mom why does great aunt bernie my mom my grandmother's sister like why does she have 20 unopened packages of bed sheets in mm -hmm. the closet and it's because it was a really good deal and you never know when you would need bed sheets you know at a good deal price like it, there were just these behaviors that i think some people jokingly said that they were readopting with the pandemic but like it's it's worthwhile to start thinking about how some of our burnout behaviors now are going to be with us for the rest of our lives um and, and influence the rest of our lives but yeah i don't think at all that like my definition of burnout that like it's unique to millennials mm -hmm. i do think that like the way that we are experiencing it it is it is shadowed and um shaded and in, in different ways and a lot of that has to do with our relationship with digital technologies and the particular amount of student debt that we've taken on um and our placement kind of the, our timing as a generation into the economy into the workplace has created conditions that i think inflect us as a generation somewhat differently than than other generations in their burnout i'm i'm first to recognize that like the <laughs> the the workaholic of the the 80s and 90s you know part of my research for this book was buying a bunch of books mm. uh, about workaholics and it was something that was really thought to be unique to like white collar males at least the way that these books positioned it but mm. that attitude towards work that envelopment um seems to have spread you know far beyond just the the paternal white collar male figure it's been democratized in a way in a yeah really terrible <laughs> yes. way yeah yeah and would you say that the phenomenon of burnout that you're describing is it a particularly american phenomenon or is there something unique happening in the united states are you seeing similar trends elsewhere in the book you give one cautionary tale of japan yeah um, but i'm wondering how you know how we compare to other countries in this way i think that it has a lot to do with unfettered capitalism so companies that have embraced that model of unfettered capitalism, I think have a lot more, are grappling with a lot more burnout. So like when I wrote the piece, it was translated into Portuguese and Spanish and French, um, and eventually into Chinese kind of like on a, on a pirated site, like someone did the, the translation on their own time and then spread it across Chinese social media. Mm. And I think that it really resonated in China, but then also I got a lot of emails from India and then interestingly from, um, from Dublin specifically in Ireland. And the reason why I like it's specific to Dublin is because that is where there's a ton of tech startups, American startups that have placed their, their offices in Dublin because of tax scenarios. And so a lot of that American style work culture is being adopted over there. But at the same time, you know, you can have these attitudes towards work in say Dublin, but there still are a few more safety nets that they have there that they're not worried all the time about, um, about healthcare necessarily, right? Like there mm -hmm. are, or the student debt crisis, like they do not have that and it's bearing down on them. Mm -hmm. So I think the particular confluence of issues is, is pretty American, but I know that a lot of people across the world who are dealing with pretty American style work scenarios are also grappling with it. Mm -hmm.
Well, Kimberly Crenshaw gave us the term intersectionality to explain as she says that intersectionality is the lens through which you see where power comes and collides, where it interlocks and intersects. It's not simply that there's a race problem here, a gender problem here, and a class or LGBTQ problem here. Many times that framework erases what happens to people who are subject to all of these things. And I think you, you highlight intersectionality really well in your book as you draw um, upon every corner of Ameri American culture to see where burnout is, is showing up. But what would you say about intersectionality within the frame of burnout? Who, who's bearing the brunt of burnout in our society? Um, you know, I think that the, the burnout that it's, a, I want to avoid like any uh, burnout Olympics because I think that it makes it harder to, to have solidarity with one another about burnout. But mm -hmm. at the same time, I do think that the burnout that bourgeois middle-class creative workers are dealing with, we can still throw money at our problems, right? Mm -hmm. um, they, we oftentimes have, if not social safety nets, we have familial safety nets, um, places that we can go to in, in, in times of, of a complete crisis, um, which not everyone has. So I think that like, the, the fewer supports that you have in this country and the, and the more that you're dealing with systemic inequalities, like the harder you have it. So, you know, think about what a, a person experiencing homelessness, like the sort of burnout that they have just on a daily basis and like, okay, I need to find, like, I need to find food. I need to find shelter. I need to find safety. Um, and that is also difficult to find just on a base level, which is part of why it's so hard oftentimes for people experiencing homelessness to, to find a way out because it takes so much labor to just find those, those basic things of food, safety, shelter, let alone to concentrate on like, how do I get my social security card? How do I do like go and sit for eight hours in the space to, you know, get access to, um, to some sort of like what I need for the next step to try to achieve housing. It's just, there's a huge barrier there. But then anyone who is trying to piece together a steady work life from, you know, work schedules that, you know, many retail and uh, fast food places, like they don't give you your schedule until the week before. And it changes every week because it's created by an algorithm. So trying to also find childcare especially if you're a single parent on top of that, like there's just so many layers of precarity that build up. So I think that while we can find commonalities in the sorts of burnout that people who are working poor and middle-class and otherwise comfortable, like there are commonalities there, but it's also important to distinguish them as well. Tiana mm -hmm. Clark had a great, um, uh, article right on the same time as yours saying, this is what black, uh, burnout feels like. And uh, she made, you know, the point that I'm quoting her now, yet for millennials of color, not only do we have to combat endless emails and Slack notifications, but we also get strapped with having to prove our humanity inside and outside of the workplace and classroom, often by circumspectly navigating the tears of white women. It's doubly, parentheses, triply exhausting, but in all the hubble about burnout, who is really allowed to take a break? Yes. Absolutely. Like if you are, I think about this in the parenting scenario a lot. So 
you're a white middle-class parent, there's all these pressures about like recreating the middle-class status for your children and, and putting them on that path to stability. But one thing that a, a white parent is probably not worried about as much is, you know, will my son be targeted for police aggression simply because of what he looks like and who he is? Right? Do I need to have these conversations about here's how you be here's exactly how you behave if you are around a police officer and having that fear just in view every day of your parenting life like that is <laughs> that is a burnout creator. And mm -hmm. I think that like that's something that we can like we need to be mindful of as we try to consider the the vast the vastness of the burnout experience, like just how many different things are layered onto each person who is experiencing. I can see how burnout becomes a generalized experience, but if we're not careful, we can, um, we have to be mindful that a lot is included in burnout. So intergenerational trauma or some mm -hmm. of the descriptions in your book, when people start to talk about burnout, I'm, I'm worried about them because it sounds like depression, yeah. um, which is uh, different than burnout, but it could be contained within it. Yeah. I think there's so like, a, you know, I'm not a, a trained clinician in this sort of thing, but like I think a lot of times people who are experiencing burnout are also experiencing depression mm -hmm. and it's hard to, to bring yourself up out of either, right? They, mm -hmm. they compound one another. And I mean, I, it's hard to separate like how to talk about both of them because they, they just seem so intertwined in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Well, and you shared that in your personal experience with burnout, you think you were living with it for a long time. Mm -hmm before you recognized it. And you shared David Foster Wallace quote in the book, uh, kind of like the, the, the goldfish. You say, How, <laughs> how's the water? And the water says, what water? It's hard to rec recognize burnout when you're, yeah. when you're swimming right in it. Um, I'm wondering just what helped you recognize it, uh, given that you were born and raised in a culture of burnout. Um. I think I just, I, I was crying a lot on the phone with my editor. Mm. Like every time they tried to give me edits, I would burst into tears, which is not my general work style. <laughs> like I am not a person who, who um, responds that way to, mm. to edits just generally. And I also, I think the other thing was that I had tried some of the things that usually felt restful to me, like things that are we're told are, are elements of self-care, whether it's like mm. a massage or a facial or like a break, like none of those things mm. really seem to, to alleviate the feeling. So it, it just had to be something different. Um, and I, I like to think of myself as a, as a pretty introspective person, but I was clearly just like thought that the way that I was working and had been working for so long, that was just the way that it was. That was just survival. That was me trying to navigate first the academic landscape and then the journalistic landscape, both of which require um, a pretty unhealthy dedication to work and envelopment of the self. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think we're almost going full circle in a way when we talked about before how burnout 
invades every aspect of our life and there's no clear separation and people are tempted to take their work home with them and also personally and create a sense of identity along with it. Um, and what I'm hearing from your story is um, just how that affected you on a core level. And a lot of the examples you share from the book, people have, they describe a sense of personal failure Mm-hmm. Um, when they do the self-care and all of a sudden, you know, it's not working. So what's wrong with me? Yeah. People tend to take that, um, experience very personally. Yeah. I, and I think that's the problem, right? Is that it's not a personal problem, really. It's a societal problem. That's how I see it. Mm-hmm. So whatever personal fixes that you can make, like they, they can help alleviate the exhaustion or the feeling temporarily, but they're band-aids ultimately if, if the greater cause is a societal one. So talk to me about some of those difficult choices because you shared before how our generation, um, we're making different choices and we have different options available to us than our parents did. Um, it's hard to get it all done, have that sense of catharsis. And I'm wondering, you know, is it possible in any way to opt out of burnout culture? Are you seeing any rack radical acts of defiance there or is it is the cost too great to opt out no i think some people are figuring out ways to do this um one of the ones that i I mentioned a little bit in the book but i see increasingly more people embracing this is like quitting a job that they are passionate about or feel a calling towards because it has been so exploitative and and really wrung everything out of themselves and choosing instead like a job, like a J-O-B job that goes like Uh nine to five, that they can really draw some clear and healthy boundaries between what is the job and what is the self. Um, uh, One that I heard today, someone was talking about dropping out of academia in light of how all of the academic institutions have, most of the academic institutions have chosen to grapple with COVID-19 right now and how like the, the capitalistic element of the, the modern university has made it so that they have to make some pretty dangerous and bad decisions in order to remain financially sol- soluble. And she said that she was being a, um, a conscientious objector to capitalism, mm. essentially. What does that <laughs> I, mean? It means that you are trying to opt out of exploitative capitalistic models, right? Mm. So you are, you are, you know, maybe you're not there like holy, you're not like, um, like an anarchist trying to burn down the system, but Mm -hmm. you are not, you are trying to not make the problem worse by participating in its worst elements. Mm. And Jenny O'Dell, who you reference in this book, makes the argument really well in her book, How to Do Nothing, when she argues that the attention economy is doing everything it can to get our likes and um, attention and scroll through. And she makes the argument that if you're just not online, if you're just not consuming uh, those generators of burnout, you're inherently doing harm reduction because yeah. you're doing something else. And you're, she calls it, I think, going horizontal, like grounding yourself um, in just other activities, which makes a lot of sense to me. Well, and I appreciate in Jenny O'Dell's argument, she is not like she's not positioning herself as a Luddite who's who completely rejects all systems, right? She's not like I refuse to have social media accounts. She just is trying to cultivate a relationship where she has so much more control over how she inter- interacts with those 
objects in the attention economy. She's the one who gets to decide where her attention goes instead of allowing those interfaces to control her attention. Mm-hmm. And when we come back to difficult choices and trying to opt out of burnout culture, you describe someone who you know wants to get a J-O-B job and a nine to five, but with that, they have to give up some hopes and dreams. There's grief and mourning attached to that. And mm-hmm. in the last couple chapters of the book, you highlight all the challenges that go into becoming a parent and the special experience of parenting burnout. And then you share some of your own personal choices and um, you know possibilities that you've had to opt out of because of the reality of burnout. Could you talk about some more examples of um, the difficult choices that people feel like they have to give up in order to reduce burnout? Yeah, I think leaving behind those passionate careers, I love that you say that it is, it forces like a, a period of mourning. Um, I think I did have, when I left academia, it wasn't, you know, completely of my own will. Like I had been on the job market and there were some avenues that I, that I could have pursued, but none that like, none that felt sustainable or healthy and making that shift, like to chain, to go away from an academic future as a professor, which you know I had been for a while and had geared my life towards uh, since essentially age twenty. That that's a whole lot of it's a whole lot of time to mourn, a whole lot of self to mourn, and I think there was a, a fair period of time there that I didn't realize like that I was in mourning and how how shaken I had been by the entire experience, how betrayed I felt. And I I really went through kind of like, you know, the classic five stages of grief in terms of Mm -hmm. anger and all those sorts of things. Um, And, and anyone who's making those decisions now or has made them in the past, like they, they will be familiar with that feeling of, of leaving behind what felt like a vocation, a calling. But then I do think most people that I talk to, and maybe I'm just talking to people, maybe the people who really <laughs> love that they made that decision are the ones who are most eager to talk about it. Mm. But they do, they feel like they have recovered a sense of balance in their lives that allows them to actually direct their passions. You know, those things, those parts of them don't die, right? The mm. part of you that was activated by that career doesn't die. It's just that it doesn't feel exploited anymore in that mm. same way. I think it's a lot of people feel very empowered by the decision, even if it often feels like a a small tragedy as well. Mm. How are you personally doing on your burnout burnout recovery journey have you have you had that experience as well that feeling of relief or accomplishment i really oscillate back and forth um i i like to think of it almost like in terms of um the language of meditation where when you Mm -hmm. see a behavior or a feeling arise that feels like a burnout behavior. I, I try not to like get mad at it or frustrate frustrated that it's here again. Mm. I just kind of pick it up, look at it, <laughs> let, <laughs> let it like sit there mm. and then decide how I want to, how I want to deal with it. Um, mm. And sometimes that means just like letting it be there for a little bit and mm. like leaning into the burnout behavior. And sometimes that means 
trying to take steps to to move away from it. So the example that I it's most vivid and recent to me is a month into the pandemic, I started just I could not stop playing this dumb Candy Crush style game on my phone. Like it wasn't a challenging game. It wasn't an interesting game. It was just a totally numbing game. And I was doing it instead of doing the things that that I really do love, whether that's reading fiction or being outside. And I saw pretty, like it was pretty transparent what was going on, right? What Like what my body wanted and craved and um, the sort of that numbness, like leaning into it. And I let myself play it for a couple of weeks. And then one day I just you know, at the end of the night of not reading my fiction and just playing this game before bed, I just looked at it and pressed the the, the app really hard and deleted mm. it off my phone. And mm. I didn't miss it, right? Like, but I needed to kind of like let that behavior uh, go through its course and, and kind of feel the, the, that feeling instead of denying its existence. Mm. So that's kind of where I am. I'm pretty burnt out right now. Um, I, between book promotion and then also uh, there's, I, I'm in the West and there's smoke all over the place that have made it really difficult to be outside and that, you know, gardening and being outside are really my antidotes. And mm-hmm. if I don't have those, it, it's easy to slide into working all the time. So I am very eager for the smoke to clear. And I think that that will help but of course not not cure it because i think it's a i think it's a systemic thing i like how you describe it as a meditation and almost i can imagine waves that you know there's a seasonality to it burnout mm-hmm. rises and decreases and and when we go back to terminology to help us a little bit it reminds me of um when i hear people who are tempted to say uh i'm i have a love addiction Um, And they they might be describing like codependency or something, or um, I'm a food addict because they stress eat. And what's really challenging about those terms of addiction is um, you can't be addicted to food or love because those are things that you actually need to survive. Mm -hmm. And for most people, that's true with work. You can't just not have a job. You can't opt out. Um, And when I think of my definition of burnout, sometimes I explain it to people as burnout's the outer limits of what we can do. Yeah. And if you're going beyond that, you're going to feel the, um, the, that sense of burnout. Because if we don't put it that way, people are tempted to, to take it personally and um, notice there's something wrong with me because I can't do it, but they're just yeah. experiencing their, their human limits. Exactly. So you are in many ways the bearer of bad news. Just writing this this book, it is um, inherently a quite depressing subject. Um, And I'm sure people are turning to you and saying, what should we do about it? How should we solve this, right? I know that's a different book entirely. Um, How do we solve the burnout epidemic? But I'm, I'm guessing you're getting that question all the time and you're giving some good examples from from your own life in terms of gardening and um, dialectical behavior therapy, the kind of therapy I do as a therapist, we call that living a life worth living. What's a life that you'd be willing to show up for? Mm -hmm. Um, And you give a really worthy critique of self-care in the book and you explain that self-care is not enough to cure burnout given the fact that it's a systemic issue, but what are individuals left to do in a world of burnout? 
I think advocate for each other and care for each other, right? Like one of the the small important things that it uh, that I include in the book is that it's not just thinking about how to reduce your own burnout; it's how you can think about reducing burnout in others, mm-hmm. and that requires us to think of ourselves as part of a larger system, whether that is the system of your home or the system of your community or the system of your workplace. Um, so you can really think about behaviors like what, what happens when I send an email at 11 p.m. on a Sunday, right? Mm-hmm. Like what are, the, what are the ripples of that? Even if I don't intend them, it doesn't really matter. Um, they, it, it creates a culture that, that other people either feel compelled to match or that makes them feel like they are not doing enough, like all sorts of things. And there are easy ways that you can address that. Um, even if let's say, cause some people I know, like, you know, sleep in late, they work on their own schedules and they do do a lot of work at 11 PM and that's fine. Or they're on different time zones, but how can you think about we have the tools in our modern society to schedule your email to arrive at 8 a.m. instead of 11 p.m. And then things just like in the community, like what are very small ways that you can help people in your immediate neighborhood, but also um, like in your community at large. And some of that involves voting decisions and support for things like affordable housing and um, supporting your local food bank, whether through donations or volunteer hours. But then some of it too is like something is easy. And I think a lot of people have done this during the pandemic is like actually being very explicit with your neighbors about like, I am your backup system. Like, mm. you know, if you have an elderly neighbor, which I do, I share like a, a back fence with a woman who's in her eighties, just being very explicit that here's my phone number. If you need anything, like if you are in feeling scared or in an emergency or any of those things, like I am here to be a person for you. And she has family, you know, in, in town, like she's not without support, but just sometimes just having that mental knowledge is so meaningful. And that can be for people with kids, people with pets, um, all sorts of things. And I think that's something that because of our <laughs> devotion and addiction to work, we've, we haven't been providing each other with very often, but that can be recuperated and, and restitched. Mm. Um, and then in, in the family, you know, one of the things that causes so much parenting burnout, and I think this really emanates from the parenting chapter, just how much anger there is about mm. parenting standards broadly, but then also the division of labor in the home and just how much labor women are, are taking on. So even though men are doing significantly more labor than perhaps their fathers or their grandfathers certainly did in the home. It's still like the division of labor. If you look at the hours spent, it's pretty sticky at around 70% for for women and 30% for men in heterosexual homes. And that, (laughs) you know, I think a lot of of, uh, otherwise seemingly progressive or equitable couples like think that they're doing a pretty good job. But then if you actually break it down, there is a lot of resentment and anger and an exhaustion. So uh, Mm. I think making those care, the amount of care visible and having a lot of clear communication when like my partner and I oftentimes I'll say like, I feel like I am carrying a lot of the mental load right now for our house. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And that often prompts him to, to be very mindful um, in the days and weeks to come about, okay, what are some things that I can completely take off of your, your plate in terms of a mental load? Mm-hmm. But it's always a process. <laughs> I love those suggestions. You know, I took some notes for myself as I was reading along of what would, what would I take from this book um, as a self-care practitioner. And I took away some really important messages, which is, it's not just me, uh, you know, learning how not to take burnout so personally and that um, burnout is something that just kind of flows through us. We're like a sieve catching it in the mm-hmm. culture um, and also kind of waking up to the symptoms of burnout, um, which hopefully should be a signal for folks to get support. Therapy, of course, is mm-hmm. an example of that, but also systemic support. Um, and of course, voting is a way to make it um, make a difference too. But I I most appreciate and love your suggestion to either take opportunities to opt out and along with you build these microcultures and finding ways to make things better, not just for the individual, but any any amount of space around you. And again, it sounds like leveraging our privilege in whatever way you have access to in that Mm -hmm. intersectional way to create a microclimate and um, one example that comes to mind sometimes as a therapist, I'm helping people schedule and they're talking to me about their workplace culture. And, you know, most folks I'm working with have benefits like PTO and vacation mm-hmm. and um, medical appointments that they're allowed to take. But even just of scheduling, you know, a 3 p.m. appointment, it feels countercultural. Yeah. Um, and we talk about the system of burnout and like, why does it feel countercultural to do that? And some folks, you know, if you have any amount of privilege, they'll go ahead and um, put it loud and proud on their calendar. Oh, I'm off to therapy. I'm yeah. using my PTO in that way. Um, and it spreads the culture a little bit. But people, uh, because of the forces of burnout in place, that, that does become something countercultural to do. You're working against culture when you do that. Yes, absolutely. And I, I do think millennials have made that, you know, one of our, <laughs> one of our strengths is we have made, uh, therapy and speaking loudly and proudly about therapy and, and making time in our workplace schedules for therapy much more of a norm. It's still a work in progress. Um, and it's also still because of the way mental health fits into a lot of people's healthcare plans or lack thereof. Like it's still something that's really hard for a lot of people to manage to find. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm thinking of a lot of my peers in, in New York and even my partner when we we're in New York, like the New York uh, mental health and therapy <laughs> marketplace is really, really hard to manage. Um, and like there are options that are, depending on what your healthcare practice, like it's hard to find a therapist who is in your network, who is covered. And then if you do find one that you really like, like in your healthcare plan changes, like trying to keep up with those, um, those co-payments can often be up in like the thousands of dollars every few months. Like it's a very, uh, it's a very significant expenditure, but one that like my partner and I decided, you know, I was paying <laughs> a big chunk of money every month for student loans. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of like my millennial penance. And he's paid a huge chunk of money every month for, for therapy. And I'm like, you know, it's all, we're working towards the same goal. <laughs> in some ways. Um, but it was something that like we had to make a, a real priority, a financial priority in our lives. Um, and so people being 
transparent both about the importance of therapy, but also about the costs and how they want mental health care to be so much more accessible for more people. I think that makes a lot of sense. There's a scarcity mindset when it comes to mental health care, and, and that would actually be accurate because we do have a mental health crisis. We don't have mm -hmm. enough providers. It's not covered, um, and it's, it's, it's not accessible to most people. Yeah. Um, and so when you describe these mutual aid opportunities, even if it's just kind of talking over the fence to the neighbor, what you're, you're acting opposite to burnout by um, being the one to alleviate someone else's cognitive uh, load and being part of a helping, helping circle. Yeah. Um, which definitely doesn't solve the problem, but it sure does sound like a good way to create community. Um, yes. And microcultures against burnout. Well, and I do think community is a burnout antidote, right? Like I think mm -hmm. that um, having meaningful things in your life, like whether uh, it's a, a spiritual practice, a, a volunteer opportunity that you just, you cannot ever, like it is something that is so important to you that is not movable. Like those things commandeer space that work can't creep into. And one of our problems as a society is we have made, we've allowed work to kind of box out all of those other things that we once thought were important. So just the act of saying like, no, this is a time that I'm not doing anything related to work, that I have made a commitment every week that I'm going to go be a volunteer firefighter for that night. Um, or that I'm going to go like have this two hour shift at the food bank. That is a resistance against burnout culture right there. I love that. Well, Anne, Helen Peterson, thank you for your wide, wise words. I'm going to end there so that everyone can stop the podcast and go ahead and schedule at least one hour or two hours or maybe something <clears throat> that becomes an ongoing ritual, but a little bit of space in their life that they can reserve to be, to be their burnout prevention ritual. Thank you that, so much for your wise words. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to be here. Therapy for Real Life also offers workplace workshops to help your team buffer against the stresses of daily life. Therapy for Real Life is known for the Burnout Prevention Hackathon, which teaches your team self-care strategies that are backed by research to help you interrupt burnout and promote self-care. Now that work has moved primarily to virtual and work from home, Therapy for Real Life has adapted the Burnout Prevention Hackathon for the online community. Get in touch to discuss your interest in stress management, burnout prevention, relationship building, and other self-care workshops and how to adapt these trainings for your team's needs.